0: Dr. Stephanie Sniff is a researcher, author, and an absolutely brilliant mind that uh, has really hit on the uh, damaging effects of glyphosate and connected it to autism in a way that's really interesting. Uh, her book is absolutely eye-opening, and she even ties into a topic that I've been taking a deep dive in with deuterium. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity podcast
1: with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies.
0: Dr. Stephanie Sniff, I am just beyond excited to be visiting with you. You. In following your work, you have brought together such a wide range of topics that uh, are pertinent to our life with my son having cancer. I have a farmer's market and trying to build out this localized food system and everything that I kind of traveled down research wise led back to to agriculture and food. And and that kind of opened up the the quantum world to me. But uh, if you don't care, just uh introduce yourself and and I love I love hearing your history because you have a very roundabout way of getting here that's true thank
1: you and thank you for having me it's my pleasure um yeah it's been quite a journey for me and most of my career was actually in computer science um I developed some of the early uh systems that preceded Siri and Amazon Echo so um that technology, we were we were early birds in that space. That was kind of exciting at the time. We were doing it. We had no idea that it would ever become commoditized because it seemed so very slow and very uh, poorly performing. So we couldn't imagine that it could ever get to this point. But it's exciting to see that come to fruition. Um, it, I uh, I have a, all my degrees are all from MIT: um, bachelor's in biology, and then the master's EE and PhD in uh, computer science and electrical engineering. So. Um, So, really, I was hacking code, you know, writing, writing computer code for most, most of my life. Uh, always worked at MIT also. So, I've never left MIT. Uh, and now I'm a senior research scientist. And, uh, it's been quite a journey. But around 2007, I, first of all, I recognized that I was becoming obsolete in my field because as the industry takes over, the kind of work we did didn't make any sense anymore. You know, they, once you've got thousands of people working on your problem, you can't compete. So, I needed to do something else. And, um, And at the same time, I saw autism rates going up, you know, year by year and uh, oh, yeah, we're just diagnosing it more. Don't worry. And I was concerned. I really felt this, this keeps up the way it is. We're going to be in big trouble in 10, 20 years, really big trouble. And this is what's happening every year is still going up, you know, even now. So it's just shocking to me that in the United States. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, of course, it's another year. Autism rates went up. That's just what happens every year. And I just don't understand how they can just say that's fine. You know, it just infuriates me. So I just wanted to figure out what was causing the autism epidemic. And I started in 2007 and I just started studying autism and looking at all kinds of possible exposures and seeing if they could be the one looking at time trends, uh, pretty much striking out after five years. I knew a lot about autism and I knew there were a lot of exposures that they have, but you couldn't find the smoking gun. I, I didn't, I hadn't found it, you know. So with a little bit of frustration, I actually happened to be at a a conference where a guy was talking. Professor Don Huber was speaking about um, glyphosate, and I didn't know what glyphosate was, but I thought, well, this is a toxic chemical. I should find out what he has to say. So I came and joined, listened for two hours to his presentation, and he was very passionate about it. He's over 80 years old, and he's still active. I really love him. He's so fantastic. Um, He started me on this journey for sure, and he just said, um, explained all the different ways that glyphosate messes up the soil, messes up... The soil microbes messes up the plant, you know, it gets depleted in nutrients, gets depleted in minerals, and then messes up the gut, messes up the liver. I mean, it was just like, wow, it fits so well with the with the defects that I knew about in autism and the things that glyphosate caused. It was just like, this is it. I was so sure. And I, I walked away a changed person, basically, and I just went back home and started reading everything I could about glyphosate. And now, you know, what, 12 years later, or 10 years later, <laughs> I guess, 11 Uh, Here we are. You know, I wrote a book. uh, I have it here. Um, This was in 2021. So after almost a decade, Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. And that book has been well received. Um, uh, The Kirkus uh, uh, Reviews um, said it was one of the top 100 nonfiction books, books of that year. So I'm happy about that.
0: I love your book. I think you've done a great job taking uh some complicated things and and breaking it down and connecting connecting dots. Uh the regenerative agriculture is a huge 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 focus for us and you That's know I excellent. think a lot of the the very well-known names have been guests and we've been very fortunate to have them on the podcast, but you're able to take the science and make the argument even more for that. So Can you can you go into before we get into the glyphosate, can you explain what what glycine is and uh, and then maybe the the overview of of methylation and and B vitamins?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So and as you may know, methylation pathways are often disturbed in association with autism. That's one of the things I was aware of. Um, But glycine is a is an amino acid. It's one of the coding amino acids. And those are the building blocks of proteins and they go with the famous DNA code. This is four-letter code four nucleotides, and they call them AGCT. And the sequence in which they occur, it's like you're reading off a code, and three of them together in a sequence are a code for a specific amino acid. And so the, the, the process of making proteins, which goes on in the body all the time, involves reading that ticker code and turning it into amino acids. So you, you see the three-letter code for glycine, and then you, uh, you you find, then that makes the, the enzyme that does that specializes in glycine and knows how to recognize glycine, puts it into the, into the sequence. And so now you get um, the, the, the whole readout of a sequence of a specific amino acids that are associated with a particular protein. And glycine is a, a very common amino acid. It's, uh, it is the smallest amino acid, it has no side chains, which is quite interesting. And that's significant. And I will say glyphosate is, you might imagine with Gly, that it has something to do with glycine. And in fact, it is an amino acid. Glyphosate is an amino acid. It's not a coding amino acid, of course. You know, Biology doesn't want to do anything, have anything to do with it, but it looks like glycine. It is a glycine molecule, and it just has extra material stuck on its nitrogen atom, which is outside of the slot where the glycine fits in the code, in the protein to make it work. So it fits into the slot where glycine fits in that enzyme that's gonna put the glycine into the, into the sequence. And so what happens, I think, is that it's grabbing glyphosate by mistake sticking it into the protein, and um, and then you've got a problem because you've got that extra material stuck on the nitrogen atom still there, and that material gets in the way. And if that glycine is out of place in the protein that's very important for the protein to work properly, it'll mess it up completely. And that's what happens actually with the protein that glyphosate famously disrupts in the shikimate pathway called EPSP synthase. And so I, that, that I has think... a glycine at the active site, and glyphosate substitutes and messes it up.
0: To me, when I heard you first mention that the glyphosate gets put into where glycine should be, I felt like that is so unbelievably profound, and I don't understand why that is not more known. And and every, you know, quote-unquote health influencer isn't screaming from the rooftops because I I, I, I don't understand why that's not just like a huge, huge deal.
1: I agree. I, I'm very frustrated because the industry has basically denied that it's true and then uh, and then the mainstream just doesn't go near it or they'll just make fun of me because I'm saying this. But to me, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. I am very confident that I'm right. And if you read that chapter in my book that makes the arguments, I think the Monsanto folks know this is happening because they had people who practically proved it. In fact, they had I talk about the bluegill sunfish in my in my book. Uh, Monsanto had commissioned these people to do a study on glyphosate. They were looking to see if it accumulates in the tissues. And so they gave these uh, mice radio, I mean, these sunfish radio labeled glyphosate, glyphosate so they could trace the radio label. And then they looked at tissues and there it was. A radio label was in the tissue. Say, OK, it did get into the tissues, number one. So then they said, well, let's just test for glyphosate using the normal methods that they have. Only 20% of the radio label could be accounted for as glyphosate. 80% went missing. So then they said, well, hmm, what happened to the glyphosate? Maybe it turned into something else, I don't know. Well, let's just see if we break the proteins down into individual amino acids and try again. And they did that and the yield went up to 80%. So in other words, at least um, 60% of the missing was actually hooked into the proteins in some way. And they said, perhaps it was incorporated into the protein, which is exactly what I'm saying, incorporated into the protein. And this was in the 1980s. These people said that, it's not a. Uh, it's not public. This, this uh, Anthony Sampson got a hold of this material from uh, through a FOIA request, and so uh, and he and he he had to sign something. and said he wouldn't show it to anybody. So he's he's got that private knowledge, and we wrote it into one of our papers. But uh, it's just amazing to me that that stayed hidden, and um, and so and then they just deny it can happen. But it's very clear to me how it happens, and and you know and it makes a complete sense. P synthase it has a glycine residue at a place where it binds phosphate, glyphosate has a methylphosphonate that can stick into the hole where phosphate of the substrate is supposed to go, the the PEP, phosphoenolpyruvate. So it can't fit. Um, The the, the substrate can no longer fit because glyphosate's in the way and that wrecks the protein. And if if you get rid of the glycine, they can mutate and they've done this, mutate the protein so it has alanine instead of glycine and then glyphosate's dead in the water, it doesn't affect it at all.
0: So what happens if a protein is messed up? What just kind of give an example for somebody that may not understand fully? Like, what do proteins? What are they supposed to do? And what happens if if they're messed up and they don't have the right building blocks?
1: Yeah, well, they have many many functions in the body. They're really the workhorses of the body. And um, of course, the DNA code is all about coding for proteins, and um, and many proteins have what's called essential glycine residues at places where they bind the substrate. That's a, a typical thing that happens with proteins. So I can find specific proteins that are vulnerable by by looking at mutations. One of the, so I look at several different ways to try to find what I call potentially vulnerable proteins. Of course, a big one is collagen. Collagen has a long, long sequence of GXY, GXY, GXY. Every third amino acid is a glycine in, in a huge long sequence in collagen molecules. It has huge amounts of glycine. And collagen is the most common protein in the body. A third of our proteins are collagen molecules. They're what make up the glue, right? They're in the joints, they're in the bones, they're in the tissues, you know, they're everywhere. Collagen is the external space is filled up with collagen. And um, and so there's tremendous opportunity for glyphosate to substitute for glycine and collagen. And when it does that, it messes up the triple helix structure. And that changes the properties of the protein. It can even cause it to get stuck inside the cell that it can't get out. And we have a lot of, um, epidemic, really, in in various problems with collagen today. And so many people are having knee surgery, hip replacement surgery, back issues, back pain issues, taking opioid drugs. You know, everyone's having many, many people are having trouble with their joints and their bones. Um, I think it's because glyphosate sprinkling itself throughout the collagen molecule and messing it up. And there's several several different uh, uh, cases of glycine mutations in collagen as a genetic defect. A single glycine residue in collagen, if that's not glycine, it can cause that molecule to tremendously misbehave and and causes um, conditions that are um, that are well known that are disrupted collagen because of a single glycine mutation.
0: It's kind of like putting in uh, the wrong sized Lego and trying to build something. It just, it just ain't going to work. right. Yeah. Um, and
1: you know, there's so many proteins that bind phosphate. This is what I, I call the glyphosate susceptibility motif. And I talk about that in my book and it's it's a model um, from EPSP synthase, the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts in the plants and the microbes and messes things up in our gut. Uh, that enzyme has a glycine residue highly conserved, meaning that, um, when You look at all different uh, animals, different, uh, not animals, but plants uh, and microbes versions of that enzyme. Most of them have glycine at that spot. That's a way to know that glycine is important. You can look at, I looked at a lot of sequence, you know, multiple uh, examples of a particular enzyme produced by different um, species. And you can line them up and you can find out which amino acids are really important in that protein by virtue of seeing consistency among the different species. That's a a game they play. And it's a fun game for me. I, I go look for these alignments and say, Oh, here's a glycine that's absolutely essential. And then I go see what happens if that's mutated. It's a whole big, you know, connecting the dots puzzle that you do to try to identify which proteins are likely to be highly susceptible. And, um, where was I going with all of that? So there's many proteins that bind phosphate at a place where glycine is highly conserved. In fact, there's even a motif, a GxxGxxG motif, three glycines, that is associated with binding ATP. Then ATP is the energy source of the cell. So so various proteins that bind ATP as part of their uh, the way they work. And they're binding ATP so they can get energy from it, and they can't bind it because it got glyphosate substituting. That's going to wreck those proteins. So we have a, a really a lot of proteins that are critical um, that are, are going to be messed up by glyphosate.
0: Again, I, I think that this is such a unbelievably fundamental part of what's going on, and I do not understand why everybody hadn't grabbed uh, grabbed on to this. Um, to to shift gears just a little bit uh, we have, uh, the gene variation, MTHFR gene variations. And I know that that probably played into my son's cancer among mm, some other things. So what, can you, can you help me understand methylation, uh, a little bit better and the B vitamins that are produced in the gut?
1: Wow. Yes. And this is a, that's a big topic. And I'm very, very excited about methylation. And in fact, I'd like to get into D, uh, deuterium at this point because deuterium plays a major role in the methylation pathways if you don't mind absolutely it might be earlier than you intended but i think it's extremely interesting i was very excited when i figured this out and it's not something you'll find anywhere because i've just worked it out myself and it has to do with deuterium and it's extremely interesting and it has to do with methionine of course methionine you may know is the universal methyl donor and methionine as you might imagine has a methyl and that methyl is attached to its sulfur atom and that methyl is is treated like gold by the body. It's treated like gold. And so the body actually, we have these enzymes um, that take that methyl away from methionine and they, and they put it into the B vitamin, you know, the folate, te, uh, tetrahydro-methyl, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Tetra-methylfolate, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, something like that. The folate with a methyl attached to it, methylfolate, that methyl came from methionine. And then that methyl eventually gets delivered, both either from methionine or from this folate. It gets delivered all over the body, stuck onto DNA molecules, stuck onto histones, you know, and that regulates DNA activity. So the um, the methyls control which proteins get expressed. They have an incredibly important role in metabolism in all the cells and the methylation pathways on the histones and the methylation pathways on the DNA. They have tremendous significance that we don't understand with a very complex signaling, you know, mechanism. Uh, biology is incredibly complicated, but that's going to control of which proteins get expressed. So hypomethylation of DNA is associated with cancer, for example. And, uh, and of course, many autistic kids have issues with the methylation pathways. They have things like this def- deficiency in MTHFR. That's a very common uh, factor in autism. And um, which is going to really mess up the—that's the—it's a reductase of the of the uh, see, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. I think is what that is, what that stands for, and that's reducing that the, um, the, the getting the um, getting the methyl back ready to go. So when you don't have that working, you have a lot of trouble with distributing them in methyls. And so um, and so the way the method the reason why those methyls are important is extremely interesting. This is what I believe, and this is new. I haven't read it anywhere, but I believe it. And that's because that methyl comes from methane gas, and methane gas is made by the microbes in the gut from hydrogen gas and carbon dioxide. Very very basic uh, biology. The, the the microbes have this skill. We can't our cells can't do this, but they take carbon dioxide out of the air, they take hydrogen gas, and they put them together and make methane, and they leave leave behind some other stuff. But they make methane, CH four. Four hydrogens. Those four hydrogens used to be two hydrogen atom uh, molecules because it's two hydrogens in each hydrogen molecule, and that's a gas, right? So we have hydrogen gas. You, know, you can actually measure hydrogen gas in the in the breath, which can determine whether you have a problem with uh, excess gas, you know, excess methane, excess hydrogen in your gut. That's an indicator of a disruption of the enzymes that grab that meth- methane gas and save it as a methyl group. So it's really fascinating biology, but the the microbes also have enzymes that can grab the methane gas and turn it into a methyl group and attach it to the, the sulfur in methionine and give you that beautiful methyl, which has extremely low levels of deuterium. And that's the punchline. Deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's natural and it's, it's found everywhere. It's in all of your, um, all over your body, lots of it. And it's a, um, it's in, for example, in seawater, there's 155 parts per million of deuterium compared to hydrogen. So it's very rare compared to hydrogen, but hydrogen is extremely common. So even though it's rare uh, relative to hydrogen, it actually is much more common, five times as common as calcium in your blood. So there's lots of deuterium. And deuterium has a problem because it, if you if it gets into the, APA, the a, <laughs> HEPAs pumps in the mitochondria, if they get diluted, deli- Delivered deuterium, it's like putting sugar in the gas tank. They're like really unhappy with the deuterium atom. So the body has come up with incredibly sophisticated mechanisms that make sure that the hydrogens that are given to that pump, the hydrogen motive force is what drives the production of the ATP. So they have lots of protons. It's proton motive force. Protons are hydrogen uh, atoms without their electrons. So they're just uh, a single uh, proton. <laughs> a proton is hydrogen. Uh, but it's a lot. It, it's it's a um, positively charged hydrogen, if you will. I don't know how much chemistry you know. That stuff can get complicated. But anyway, yeah. the protons are put into the are into the ATPase pumps, lots of them, and, and they and they, they they flow through and they create energy that can um, make ATP, add a phosphate to ATP, and um, and deuterons are going to go in there too. Deuterons are the equivalent of protons. So hydrogen to proton is deuterium to deuteron. So deuterons are like protons, except they have an extra neutron, which makes them twice as heavy and makes them stick better to things that they bind to and makes them less willing to do uh, ionic bonds with other molecules. So there's ways in which deuterium is different from hydrogen that are significant. And so the enzymes that are working with hydrogen, they want hydrogen, they don't want deuterium. And if deuterium is there, it's going to mess them up. And particularly this ATPase pump. So you can't Uh, make enough, the mitochondria can't make enough ATP if they've got too much deuterium and the pumps break and they have to be rebuilt. And the mitochondria release what's called reactive oxygen species, which damage everything. They mess up the lipids. They just cause a big mess, cause DNA mutations. That's really bad news. You don't want reactive oxygen species and you get more, the more deuterium you have. So the body has come up with all these fancy mechanisms that Uh, deliver low deuterium uh, protons to the mitochondria. And one of the critical things that they've done, I think, is to stash these methyls onto the DNAs, onto the histones. They have them stored in the cell, and then they get metabolized off the cell, and those protons get fed to the mitochondria that are very low in deuterium because the hydrogen gas that was made by the bacteria has 80% of its deuterium gone. The, 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 The gas the deuterium stays behind in the liquid phase, it stays behind stuck to the molecule, and the enzyme actually knows how to prefer hydrogen over deuterium. So by the time you get the gas, the hydrogen gas that those microbes make, 80% of the deuterium is gone. And that's what makes the methane so valuable because it has those same hydrogens that came from that gas. And then the methyl does too. So those methyls that are attached to methionine are very low in deuterium, down to only 20% of what would normally be found. And that's why they're so special, and that's why the body obsesses on sort of keeping them and sticking them places, and then picking them off to deliver those protons to the mitochondria. It's really, really fascinating, and I believe this is what's happening, and I think it's crucial to biology.
0: So why is methylation so important? Um, that may be too broad of a question, but why, just help, help us understand just the importance of of what science you just laid out is.
1: Yeah, well, I think the the point is that this is a way for the body to assure that the mitochondria are receiving uh, hydrogen hydrogen that's not likely to be deuterium. This is what I believe. And the, the real reason, of course, there is a whole bunch of signaling that happens with the methyls as they're placed in different places. They have meaning, you know, exactly where the methyls show up in the histones. The histones are are controlling which DNA gets expressed. And so when they're methylated, typically methylation suppresses the expression of of, them. So when you have hypomethylation with cancer that says low methyls on the histones and on the DNA, uh, that causes certain uh, proteins to become expressed that are associated with cancer. So the hypomethylation causes uh, expression of these oncogenic proteins that will then lead towards um, cancer risk in that cell. So you wanna have lots of methyls uh, to keep the cell healthy, which makes sense because you need those methyls to keep the mitochondria healthy. And of course, mitochondrial damage is a real trigger for cancer. That's when you get um, DNA mutations and you can get mutations that then also lead to cancer. So cancer, you get to cancer from many different pathways, but I think all of them connect to this deuterium problem. So I believe deuterium excess in the mitochondria is a central issue in cancer.
0: Where do these B vitamins come into play with the methyl- methylation um, focus? Because I think this ties—it ties right back into the glyphosate, right? So it why does tie into is... the B
1: vitamins and the glyphosate. Yes, um, good, good question. So,
0: do you yeah, care to go into that.
1: Well, there's several. I mean, uh, uh, several uh, B vitamins that are important for the methylation pathways, and certainly folate—that's a B vitamin—and uh, the methyltetrahydrofolate is a meth. That's one of those golden methyls. So folate is actually carrying the methyl around and delivering it places. And then there's cobalamin, which is essential for the pathways to work, B12. That's another one that's uh, deficient in autism, deficient in Alzheimer's. You can actually create an Alzheimer's-like syndrome by having B12 deficiency. So cobalamin is really important. And cobalamin gets messed up by glyphosate. I've published a paper together with Greg Nye on that topic, how glyphosate messes up cobalamin uh, absorption and um, and then uh, there's also uh, niacin, uh, so NAD nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide is a major carrier of low deuterium hydrogen. It's used in many, many metabolic reactions, and it, it NAD plus gets converted to NADH, and that H is coming from uh, a low deuterium source. so so NADH becomes a carrier. Of low deuterium nitrogen, uh, low deuterium hydrogen that then gets delivered to the mitochondria. NADH actually pumps its hydrogens into the mitochondria, so it's really interesting that that's like the methyls. The methyls are holding on to three hydrogens that are that are gold, and then the NADH is holding on to one. But the NADH can actually just physically deliver that hydrogen to the mitochondria, and so all these reactions that involve NADH are gathering a really high quality hydrogen and then giving it to Uh, the mitochondria and NADH comes from niacin it's actually a um glyphosate disrupts tryptophan synthesis that's a product of the uh, shikimate pathway and tryptophan is a precursor to NAD so uh so that can become a deficiency in NAD uh when uh, glyphosate exposure is messing up the supply of, of tryptophan to the host because it breaks the uh the shikimate pathway in the microbes in the gut
0: which is why that glyphosate is just causing a massive. Another reason it's causing a massive because it kind of acts like an antibiotic in the the gut. Uh, it along certainly does, with and in disrupting fact, disrupting the
1: glycine. Yeah, I've been excited about several papers that have come up uh, come out on glyphosate in the last few years. I'm really excited because I really feel there's a change in attitude of, of the research community. I think, um, you know, of course, Monsanto always discouraged uh, researchers who are involved in looking at toxic exposures, they always discouraged them from looking at glyphosate and they often got money from them to do their research. So they really didn't want to go there, right? Um, and, and also because they were told glyphosate is safe, it's kind of boring to work on something that's safe because you don't find anything wrong, right? And so people weren't, uh, weren't doing research on glyphosate, but there's been a rebirth lately in some very interesting uh, results that have come up with a low dose exposure of glyphosate to rats and also looking epidemiologically at humans in places where they're exposed to glyphosate, um, some very striking um, things are coming out. One, for example, is leukemia, childhood leukemia. And there were two papers that came out recently. One from Brazil, and one is the Ramazzini Institute, I think, in Italy, and, and a team of people as well. Um, that the Ramazzini one was involved rats, and they exposed the rats to low dose glyphosate, and they found um, a significant uh, Increase in the in, in cases of leukemia, but particularly in young rats, they said that they had done studies with 1,600 rats in the past with various experiments, and they had never seen a rat get leukemia at such a young age, as they saw in multiple rats in this experiment with exposure to glyphosate. So leukemia at a young age, we have an epidemic right now in childhood leukemia, and there's the study in Brazil looked at people. They looked at kids, in regions they had they looked at. Um, Soy GMO Roundup Ready soy, which is grown in huge amounts and um, and correlated that with uh, it might be Argentina. It's either Argentina or Brazil. I'm not sure. But um, I know Argentina has tons of that GMO Roundup Ready uh, soy. And the people who lived close to the soy fields had their children had an increased risk of leukemia.
0: Oh Lord. Yeah, well, being, you know, in Arkansas we have a lot of uh cropland and we uh coincidentally have a whole lot of cancer uh and mm-hmm. other, you know, neurodegenerative diseases uh to go along with that. S- the importance of hydrogen have has become something that is very evident. Uh I-, I had no idea. I'm relatively new to this aspect of health. Um something that has, has popped up too with that is is melanin in relation to uh creating available hydrogen for the the mitochondria what how can I comprehend that
1: hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure melanin and melatonin are both really really interesting molecules, and melanin of course responds to the uh to the sunlight and produces a tan. And, uh, and melanin comes from the chikame pathway. It's, it's, it, it, it's derived from those elements that come from the chikame pathway. So I suspect melanin is deficient in association with glyphosate exposure. And of course that gives you higher risk of, um, of getting skin cancer from sun exposure because melanin protects you from skin cancer. Of course, the, causing, the tan is protective against burning uh, and the whole melanin uh, expression is going to protect you from skin cancer. So you're, when you're getting exposed to glyphosate, you don't make enough melanin, Your skin you don't tan and you're more susceptible to burning. And then you're more inclined to use sunscreen. And sunscreen is also toxic. Uh, It has toxic ingredients in it, especially aluminum. So you're kind of caught in a bind with the glyphosate. But the um, melatonin, I I know well, I'd like to talk about melatonin because that's extremely interesting. And in fact, there's a brand new paper, 2023, just came out. I was thrilled to see that because it showed that glyphosate suppressed melatonin in in rats. Um, 43% 43% reduction of melatonin in the, in the blood samples in these rats. And that is, I think that may be a crucial, crucial aspect of glyphosate's toxicity. And yeah. melatonin is very interesting because it comes from serotonin. Serotonin also comes from the shikimate pathway. So the serotonin is going to be, that's a neurotransmitter. It's going to be suppressed. Melatonin is serotonin with, with low deuterium hydrogens packed on top of it because it puts a methyl group and an acetyl group onto the serotonin molecule to make melatonin. And both the acetyl and the methyl come from those gut microbes and from that hydrogen gas. You can trace them all the way back to say, melatonin is gonna be a fantastic deliverer of low deuterium hydrogen to the mitochondria. And melatonin has huge, huge list of, of beneficial elements to it. I mean, it's just, it's it's a wonderful antioxidant, it binds metals, It um, it, it helps the mitochondria, I mean, it just, there's huge numbers of papers that say how wonderful melatonin is but if you take supplemental melatonin you're not going to have that benefit this is something i I like people to realize the the problem a big problem with supplements is that most of these um, supplements that are pure molecules are made in the chemistry lab and when you make them in the chemistry lab you have no clue about giving them low deuterium so when you take a melatonin supplement you're taking a version of melatonin that's not healthy and then your body's going to think that it is and it's going to treat it as if it's providing low deuterium hydrogen, but it's not. So I think that can backfire if you take a lot of melatonin supplements.
0: So so that is that's a super interesting uh, take. And and one reason for that is I'm very, very actively involved in a lot of these alternative cancer groups. Like, I, honestly, I'm, I'm obsessed on cancer. Um and what we have uh, found in a lot of these groups is that high-dose melatonin has actually been extremely beneficial for cancer um, based off of, you know, what you just said about, about melatonin. But the uh, Russell Ryder, for example, you have spoken with him and he the deuterium's not on their radar at, at all. I, I agree. Um, so how... How can we look at the uh, utilization of melatonin in kind of these extreme situations? Is is there a, a bio-identical uh, melatonin uh, that you know of um, or, you know, no, that's for a, a healthy impression. person?
1: Yeah, it might be that uh, there's there are sources of melatonin. I, I, I don't know about melatonin particularly, but I know a lot of the amino acids are made in the chemistry lab. It could be that melatonin is 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 processed through some you know bacteria harvested from bacteria or something like that you'd have to look up to see how melatonin is uh, produced Uh, and i i try to do that that's kind of hard to do but you can look for patents and things you know sometimes you can figure that out because people talk about natural versions for example insulin natural versus synthetic all these different um, molecules often come in a natural or synthetic form And I just think if you're going to take melatonin, you want it to be natural. And I just don't know the uh, I don't know nearly enough about the the way they make these supplements that they sell to know if it is natural or synthetic. Uh,
0: I don't trust supplement companies any more than I trust Big Pharma, to be completely honest with you. So I think that you've got very, very valid points. Um, I'm going to take a deep dive into that, too, because I think that that's it is the high dose melatonin is absolutely uh working for people with cancer like it, it is I don't know that that's, that that's the interesting. best way yeah. but no, that's, that's it really is working. Interesting. yeah uh i'm I'm also curious on the the chelation aspect of glyphosate and especially the importance of say copper uh you know morley robbins uh tried to to understand you know what all all he's put out too and i I know that glyphosate is a chelator. It depletes copper. I know copper is important. I don't fully understand all of that aspect of it. So what, what is your take on, on that little aspect?
1: Yeah. No, I think uh, glyphosate is messing up a lot of these minerals, uh, including copper and manganese, magnesium and iron, uh, cobalt. All of them are, are going to be bound tightly to glyphosate. And, and manganese, for example, is one I've written about. I've written a whole paper on, on manganese and glyphosate. And I think it's connected to autism as well. Because, um, and, and so manganese and all of these uh, minerals play an important role in the brain, of course. And you can have toxicity as well as they're critical as, as uh, nutrients. So they're both, they can be both essential and toxic at the same time, which is very, very tricky. But in this paper on manganese, I know more about manganese than copper. Although I know copper is also a problem because I remember there's a copper, there's a protein, I won't remember the name of that. It's been a while, Cooper is something or other, that um, binds like uh, seven or eight copper atoms. And, and it actually is essential for the absorption of, of iron, I believe. This this enzyme that has copper um, plays a role in getting iron into the body. And So we have actually an epidemic in iron deficiency and iron toxicity at the same time uh, right now. And I think that's because glyphosate is messing up the iron. Glyphosate totally, you know, the body has, again, sophisticated mechanisms for sort of trapping um, these minerals in certain biological chelators and then uh, escorting them across the gut barrier, delivering them safely to to cells. And the cells have ways of taking them and storing them safely. You know, all of this mechanism that's in place um, to distribute them appropriately to where they need to go and to make them available to play their role in some enzyme that depends upon them. And, um, and glyphosate is just messing all of that up by binding very tightly. So it binds very tightly to the manganese, which prevents the, uh, the uh, bacteria. The lactobacillus critically depend on manganese. They're really uh, very interesting that way. They don't really care about iron at all, but they really care about manganese. Glyphosate keeps the manganese away from them. And then the lactobacillus get sick and so they become reduced in numbers and then these pathogens take over. The gut gets completely imbalanced with regard to which, you know, which microbes are living there. And then um, glyphosate grabs onto the manganese and carries it to the liver. And then the liver is now has this manganese. Normally the liver uh, sends the manganese back to the gut attached to bile acids and then it gets distributed throughout the body via, via the blood system. But but li- the liver can't do that because the glyphosate's hanging on to the manganese. And The manganese becomes gets ends up being stored in the liver and in the gallbladder, and then the only way to get rid of the manganese is to ship it on nerve fibers up to the brain. And it, manganese travels very well on nerve fibers, which is very interesting. It's a very interesting mineral, and so the the manganese travels on the nerve fibers up to the brain centers. For example, the um, Parkinson's disease, you know. It accumulates in the, uh, in the substantia nigra, which is the place where, where that's associated with Parkinson's damage to the substantia nigra. So the manganese ends up accumulating in the substantia nigra, and that can cause Parkinson's disease. And, and this is something that's well known with um, welders. Welders are doing uh, are releasing a lot of manganese dust, and then they breathe it into the nose, and then it travels along the, the, the nerve fibers that connect the nose to the brain center and ends up causing a, a Parkinson's-like syndrome for uh, welders, if they're exposed to these manganese uh, in dust, they end up with Parkinson's disease because, again, of the manganese getting accumulating in those brain centers uh, and causing uh, damage. So I think, you know, either coming on the nerve fibers from the gut or coming on the nerve fibers from the, from the nose, the same thing you end up with. Um, and, and I think it's going to affect things like ADHD and autism as well.
0: Well. Wow. It's fascinating. So, what uh, what did, what are you seeing with kind of the uh, the benefits of what what are you seeing helps with autism? Is there anything that you, you're seeing as a as a game changer uh, to apply, uh, especially you know ADHD, autism, any any of that? What what's helping?
1: Well, certainly organic diet, certified organic diet, number one and number two, um, non processed foods, avoid processed foods. I think if if an autistic child can be put on a healthy diet, and a third thing I would say is rich in sulfur, a sulfur-rich diet based on whole foods certified organic, that I think would be the biggest change to help help to solve the autism problem. I believe that very strongly. And the sulfur is very important. Uh, The sulfation pathways are completely messed up in autism, and I think that's also due to uh, glyphosate. Glyphosate messes up both the sulfation pathways and the methylation pathways, both of which are disturbed in autism. And in fact, there's a recent paper I was also very thrilled to see. I love it when I've sort of figured something out and I have a theory and then a paper comes along that sort of proves that I was right. You know, this has been happening lately, so it's making me very happy. I I have to mention glyphosate also because there's a paper, new paper that connects glyphosate to celiac disease, gluten intolerance, which I've, I've been saying for a very long time. And I have a paper that I wrote on that Speculative, you know, we didn't really have hard evidence because we don't do experimental science. But from just connecting the dots, I could predict that glyphosate would cause gluten intolerance, and that's another epidemic we have. People can't eat wheat; they're avoiding avoiding wheat is a very difficult, you know, task to carry out. And uh, if they would just switch to certified organic, they might even cure themselves of the problem. I think. Uh, just by eating certified organic uh, wheat, you know, and, and all the foods certified organic. And I got off on a tangent there, but I want to get back to the sulfate because autism has been associated with sulfate deficiency. There was work in the ni- 1990s by a woman named Rosemary Waring, who showed that the autistic kids had a peculiarity with their sulfur system. They had high levels of, of um, sulfur metabolites, biosulfate and sulfite in their urine, way, way high, like 50 times as high as normal kids. And, but they had low sulfate in their blood. And so she suspected they had some issues with the sulfation pathway. Sulfite needs to go to sulfate uh, through an enzyme that, that she suspected was, uh, was disrupted in, in autism. And then there's also enzymes that attach sulfate to molecules. And those are super, super important. They're called sulfotransferases. I talk a lot about this in my book. Sulfotransferases take sulfate off from the universal sulfate donor, just like methionine is the universal methyl donor. There's a universal sulfate sulfate donor, which is called PAPS, phosphoadenosylphosphosulfate. It's a combination of an ATP molecule with a sulfate. It sort of energizes the sulfate. And that molecule becomes a source of sulfate to attach to things. And lots of things are sulfated in transit. Mostly it's things that are uh, not water-soluble. And that includes all of the hormones, you know, the uh, testosterone and estrogen. It also includes uh, serotonin and melatonin and thyroid hormone um and uh and then tryptophan so all of these uh, the amino acids uh the aromatics those are the source of all those interesting molecules that are that are hormones and neurotransmitters so the, all of that uh, all of those have to be sulfated and trans including vitamin D and cholesterol so cholesterol sulfate vitamin D sulfate and, and of course the the hormones the sex hormones come from from cholesterol and they're also sulfated so everything is in all these fat soluble molecules rely on sulfate to be able to trans, be transported in the blood. So when you can't stick a sulfate on them, that's a huge problem. And and then you can't distribute them and then you become deficient everywhere in the supply of both those molecules and the sulfate. And so uh, long story short, heparin sulfate is extremely low in the in the brain in association with autism, both in humans and in mice. They found that heparin sulfate, that's a very important molecule in the extracellular matrix that has important roles in signaling and all of this, it's an incredibly uh, essential molecule that um, if it's messed up, you're gonna have problems with neurodevelopment, for example. And it's been shown in both these mouse models of autism and the humans, very low heparin sulfate in the brain. Um, this paper that I referred to, was published recently, they showed um, that the heparin, that the enzyme that attaches sulfate to make the heparin sulfate is defective. In the uh, pineal gland of the autistic child they they looked at post-mortem at autistic data and showed very low levels of expression of that protein of that of that enzyme as well as very low levels of heparin sulfate in the brain very critical i think a core feature of autism um, reflected in the fact that that sulfation enzyme is not working and then when i look at that enzyme you know it has a very beautiful glyphosate susceptibility motif where it binds phosphate at a place where glycine is highly conserved. two glycine residues are highly conserved at that spot. If glyphosate substitutes for either one of them, it's going to mess it up. So I think glyphosate is playing a role in disrupting these enzymes. And if you already have a kind of a mutation that makes it less effective than normal, then you're at greater risk.
0: Wow. So I, I have I have an autistic sister and I've, I've just kind of dove in to try to see what, what you can do. And something that I came across was the using supplemental uh, sulfur, MSM, and mm. having some positive effects in there. So that's really interesting how you tied that. See, that's got methyls in as
1: well. And I've been curious about that one. That's methyl meth- methane. It's got two methyls as well as a sulfur. That seems like a really interesting molecule to me. Because if those methyls are low in deuterium, that's a fantastic uh, nutrient, right? But I don't know. I haven't looked at how how that's made or, you know, that's a hunch.
0: <laughs> if, if, uh, just got a hypothesis real, real quick to run by. You. If we need the sulfur to help move fat soluble things, if it is a toxin, and say we did a sauna or an exercise or whatever, would that, in theory, help move it out, out the toxins? If we, if we had the active sulfur,
1: yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's really interesting with glyphosate because if you do manage to get it out of your proteins, uh, it's a, it's available again to go into some other protein. So it's extremely hard to get it out. Um, you have to actually excrete it somehow, you know, and uh, they're binders. So there's like. Um, uh, let's see, humic acid and uh, fulvic uh-huh. acid. Have you heard of those? Absolutely. Fulvic acid, humic acid. Yeah. So those are binders. Um, they're pretty interesting because they might even have enzymes in them that can metabolize glyphosate. Because I read that um, they they're they're complex you know molecules that trap enzymes, and so those enzymes can come from from soil microbes, for example. And those enzymes can be very powerful and very general in terms of being able to break down toxic exposure. So it's possible that there are enzymes in the fulvic acid and humic acid that could break down the glyphosate, but they do bind to the glyphosate and they can take it out, you know, through the feces. So people are taking yeah. those as a as an idea for trying trying to extract glyphosate from the gut. My frustration is that if glyphosate, if you've been exposed to glyphosate for a long time, you've got it scattered throughout your body, attached, yeah. embedded in various proteins. And, um, you know, people can do starvation, for example, fasting, which will force you to metabolize your own tissues. And then in doing so, you'll release some glyphosate molecules from those proteins. And then if you can get those glyphosates out through the urine or something, then you're good. But, you know, who knows where they're going to go and what they're going to do next? I mean, it's just like a yeah. crapshoot, really.
0: Get you know the you mentioned the humic and fulvic. I, I know that uh, the proof is kind of in the pudding when farmers do not want humic complexes uh, when they're using Roundup because it it binds it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's really interesting that you brought that up. Um, uh, Carolyn Allen uh, is a friend, and she has Beam Minerals, and she does the humic and and fulvic uh, supplement. And it, that's it's really really interesting on on that that dynamic. Let's let's shift a little bit more. I've been on this deep dive with deuterium and mm-hmm. uh, talked to, you know, Dr. Boros and Dr. Petra and uh, it, there's how do we help move on this awareness? What do you think's next for for deuterium and what can we do to to spread the message?
1: Right. Well, I'd love to see some people doing some research, more research focused on deuterium because there's a lot that could be done. There's a lot of Uh, I have frustration when I try to find out if a particular enzyme uh, is, many enzymes are able to select hydrogen over deuterium. They have what's called a deuterium kinetic isotope effect, which is um, people can measure um, how effective they are at at working if you put a deuterium there instead of the hydrogen. And in fact, the enzyme that picks off the methyls, picks off the hydrogens from the methyls one by one that are attached to the DNA, that enzyme has a very strong uh, preference for hydrogen over deuterium, meaning that if there is a deuterium there, it won't it won't do it. You know, it, it, it'll just uh, refuse to take it. So that's very interesting to me. There's other enzymes. There's a fantastic enzyme uh, that I'm interested in. And I should mention this because taurine is another thing that I think could be useful for autism. Uh, taurine as a supplement or eating high taurine foods would be better. And that includes things like seafood, and grass-fed beef, and eggs, you know, these are good sources of taurine. Taurine is only found in animal-based foods. It's not present in plant-based foods. So if you're eating a a, a, a vegetarian diet, you're not going to get taurine in your diet. You can make it, you know, from other other molecules, but you can't, uh, you won't have it in your diet. And I think taurine is a really cool molecule because it's the only sulfonated amino acid, the only amino acid that has sulfonate. On it, sulfonate is almost sulfate, it just needs one more oxygen to become sulfate. And the microbes uh, know how to metabolize taurine and they use an enzyme called taurine alpha-ketoglutarate dioxygenase. That's quite a mouthful. That enzyme is incredibly fascinating to me because it takes taurine and it takes alpha-ketoglutarate and reacts them together and produces products Uh, One of those products is a um, modification of taurine that allows you to turn it into sulfate. So you can extract sulfate from taurine after you have this enzyme. And the enzyme then takes the alpha-ketoglutarate and turns it into a really useful nutrient to feed to the mitochondria. So it's a super, super good uh, enzyme. Our bodies, uh, our cells don't know what to do with taurine. They can't react with it. Pretty much can't do anything with it. It just stays inert and so these microbes are really fancy that they can do this and that enzyme has an incredibly high deuterium kinetic isotope effect and it lands an age onto nad so it makes an nadh which is a golden age that can be feed the mitochondria it makes a sulfate from the taurine and it makes a nutrient to fuel the mitochondria from the alpha ketoglutarate so it's a fantastic enzyme that the microbes have that illustrates my point that you know about deuterium that this enzyme is able to um, deliver a really good hydrogen to the uh, mitochondria of the host, which is quite interesting. So taurine uh, taurine is fascinating to me because the microbes can turn it into sulfate and that sulfate can supply the host with sulfate that's much needed in order to be able to transport all these fat-soluble nutrients.
0: Those uh, Those gut bugs are pretty important, aren't they?
1: <laughs> they really are. I'm just amazed at how much they do. And, you know, it's interesting because back in the day before we had glyphosate, uh, researchers didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the to the microbes because they were just working fine, and we didn't see any problem. But now that we see all these problems with them, there've been huge numbers of papers coming out that are finding all kinds of interesting things, including finding that glyphosate disrupts them in exactly the way that Anthony Sampson and I predicted ten years ago. So I'm seeing papers coming out recently that are proving through experimentation that what we predicted was correct. And this makes me very, very excited because I think eventually we're going to be vindicated right now. We're sort of like the mainstream thinks we're just making smoking dope, you know, but I think we're going to be vindicated uh, as more and more research is done that, that proves that what we said is true.
0: So do you have, uh, what are, what are your tips for a low deuterium uh, diet or, or lifestyle?
1: Very good question. Yes. And in fact, there are, it's interesting because the foods contain different amounts of deuterium depending upon uh, how they're made and, and in particular fats uh, and saturated fats and animal-based fats are all low in deuterium. And so they become fantastic foods. I think that uh, animal-based fats are one of the healthiest nutrients you can you can get. And it's sad that we've had many years of being encouraged to eat a low-fat diet. I think that's been a huge mistake. And fortunately, I never bought into that. And so I never switched over from butter to margarine either. So uh, butter is so much better for you than margarine. And butter actually has butyrate in it. And butyrate is a really super nutrient. And I should mention that because these short chain, that's a short chain fatty acid. and Butyrate and uh, propionate and and acetate. Those are the three short chain fatty acids that are produced by the gut microbes from fiber. And those fatty acids are also going to be very low in deuterium, I believe and so butyrate becomes a very important fuel for the for the colonocytes the uh, the cells that line the colon they really love butyrate that's their favorite food and they get it from their microbes but the glyphosate has been shown experimentally and that's again a recent paper i was so thrilled to see that specifically showed that glyphosate disrupts disrupts those microbes and disrupts their the supply to the host of those critical nutrients and i wrote about that in my book hypothetically because i had seen enough evidence of glyphosate uh, changing the pH of the gut, it causes the pH to go up and it becomes too basic. And these are acid loving bacteria that um, that make these, these critical nutrients for the host. So they become deficient because they can't live in that high pH environment.
0: I love it. There are so many different directions to go and uh, just, it's a never ending learning, is it? It
1: certainly is. I I love a puzzle. (laughs) This is like, this is keeping me very happy. I just read research papers all day long and and I'm, we're working out, um, I'm working again right now on this, on a paper that I hope we pull together and get published on autism and glyphosate, which is, of course, my big topic, but we're going even deeper than I've gone before with this paper and we'll see where that, where that goes. But we're working on one right now together with myself and Anthony Kiriakopoulos, who is a, I call him the Greek God because he's really brilliant and he's been helping me to learn. So I love interacting with people like Laszlo Boros, you know, um, and and, and Anthony Kiriakopoulos and also um, Don Huber. You know, all these people have been wonderful. And I've just really enjoyed uh, the journey that I've taken over the past 15 years uh, trying to figure all this out. I think it's super important because we're very sick. Our society is very sick right now. We have so many health issues. Our life expectancy is going down. birth rate you know uh, increased risk of all kinds of problems with the kids and it breaks my heart to see how damaged our next generation is and i feel we need to do something drastic and i feel that if the government could just decide to even just to start su- subsidizing organic farming and taking away the subsidies yeah. from the toxic foods that are being produced on these um ke- with these chemical based farming methods if they could just shift that money towards the organic farms maybe give a give one of those farms a a break as far as helping to fund their process of converting to organic, because that becomes hard if you've been using glyphosate for years. You've got glyphosate in your soil and your soil is all messed up. You know, you have to rejuvenate. As you know, regenerate the soil in order to be able to get to the point where you can declare yourself certified organic. So even though you've stopped using chemicals, you can't sell your product as a certified organic product until you clean up your soil. And that takes money. And so you get into a bind as a farmer who's been using chemicals how to get on the other side of the fence so you can sell your product as some certified organic food to make more money.
0: And it, uh, it, it doesn't take long to, sp- uh, spending time in a pediatric oncology ward to know how, you know, messed up it, it, it really, really is. And, uh, I, I'm with you. It's, a uh, it's the food system uh, is such a massive part. There's other important things, but the food system, I think that it's the local as much as it is anything else. And just understanding that these additions like the glyphosate uh, are massive, massive disruptors to optimum health. And uh, that's, you know that that's the flip side of all this. You you help back me up on the the science of why, and then we got to make sure that the farmers are making money and that they're doing it in a way that's benefiting everything. So I and keeping their healthy hope. too,
1: so they don't get poisoned I, by the by the chemicals that they're using themselves. You know, it really makes sense to find a way.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, well, and I want to mention so sunlight. Much. I
1: didn't. You mentioned melatonin. Mel- 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 Melanin, the skin's melanin. melanin. And sunlight is super, super important. So I want to mention that sunlight exposure to the skin will help to uh, improve the the blood. The sulfate problem can be greatly improved through sunlight exposure. Um, And of course, vitamin D, the the skin makes cholesterol sulfate in response to sunlight, in addition to vitamin D sulfate. And cholesterol sulfate is a way to distribute cholesterol throughout the body. Um, When you can't add sulfate to cholesterol, you get uh, high blood. Cholesterol, you get the the cholesterol hiding inside those lipid particles, the LDL, that ends up with putting you on a statin drug because you've got too much LDL. That's because the cholesterol is not sulfated, so it can't be transported freely. It has to go inside. That LDL particle—that's what's causing the high LDL. I think is because of the impaired sulfation of the cholesterol, and of course, the vitamin D also needs sulfate to be transported. So that's those are big issues. But the sunlight exposure does more than give you vitamin D, and I want to emphasize that—that's an important thing for autism to get out in the sunlight without sunscreen, without sunglasses—to allow the sulfur, uh, the sunlight to influence the pineal gland to make uh, melatonin sulfate uh, to help you sleep. So. Just want to end on that. I, I wanted to mention that because that's I
0: important. Love it. I love it. Yeah, that's becoming more and more evident that that is a massive uh, piece of the puzzle that we're missing uh, as well. Well, hopefully we can uh, you know, get back together uh, after. I hope you get your paper together. Uh, yeah, coming I out so and we can re-go <laughs> over that. And And where can we best support you or how can we best support you?
1: Well, I don't, I don't solicit money from anybody, but just look at Stephanie Seneff dot, uh, Stephanie Center dot net. And of course, uh, promote my message. You know, if anyone who has any kind of, uh, forum where they can just, you know, put uh, things out on social media or, or do things like what you're doing with podcast interviews, um, spreading the word about the message that I have about the glyphosate and its toxicity and about the deuterium and how important that is uh, for health. So.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the time, and I appreciate everything that uh, you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for doing
0: this. Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com.